Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Perion to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Patreon. Any little amount will will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Patreon is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly, pay the writers and just keep going well into the future. We've been going 10 years there now, Thanks to all your loyal support. Please keep it up and pop over to Patreon. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 462. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. A new era is upon us. I'm still so excited. But let's get straight into the show. First up is the main fiction, Scream Angel by Douglas Smith. Then, as it is the very day, the very end of the month, we have our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So I don't want to talk too much about Patreon and the stories. I want to just jump straight in. So first up is the main fiction, Scream Angel by Douglas Smith. Originally published in Lowport, Douglas Smith is an award-winning Canadian author described by the Library Journal as one of Canada's most original writers of speculative fiction. His work has appeared in 25 languages in over 30 countries. His fiction includes urban fantasy novel, the Wolf at the End of the World, and collections Chimera Scope, Impossibilia. His non-fiction guide for writers, playing the short game How to Market and Sell Short Fiction, is a must-read for any short story writer. Douglas is a three-time winner of the Canadian Aurora Award and has been a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award, CBC's Bookies Award. 
A short film based on Doug's short story, By Her Hand, She Draws You Down, won several awards at film festivals around the world. His website is smithwriter.com and he tweets at smithwright with just the R. This story is narrated by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around Western USA. He currently resides in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, where he works as a voice artist, primarily focused on audiobooks. He's probably best known for being the voice of Glenn and Tyler series books, written by J.B. Sanders. If you're ever in Denver area in March, you can find him on stage with Magic Moments, a non-profit theatre group that brings theatre professionals and people with special needs together to create an original show every year. You can hire Brian to narrate your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com. There's a link on there to Brian's site. Brian, what a great idea about the theatre. Well done, sir. Just, just brilliant. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Scream Angel by Douglas Smith Read by Brian Rollins They stopped beating Trelane when they saw that he enjoyed it. Thugs that passed as cops in that town on Longshot backed away from where he lay, curled on the dirt floor, as if he was something dead or dangerous. He watched them lock the door of his cold little cell again. Disgust and something like fear showed in their eyes. The taste of their contempt for him mixed with the sharpness of his own blood in his mouth, and the scream in that blood shot another stab of pleasure through him. He expected their reaction. The merged corporate entity guarded its secrets well, and Scream was its most precious. Longshot lay far from any entity project world and well off the jump route linking Earth and the frontier. No one on this backwater planet would know of the drug, let alone have encountered a Screamer or an Angel. That was why he had picked it. Their footsteps receded, and the outer door of the plasteel storage hut that served as the town jail clanged shut. Alone, he rolled onto his side on the floor, relishing the agony the movement brought. He tried to recall how he came to be there, but the scream in him turned each attempt into an emotional sideshow. Finally, he remembered something burning, something falling. It had been one of their better shows. He remembered now remembered last night, standing in the ring of their makeshift circus dome, announcing the performers to an uncaring crowd, crying out the names of the damned, the conquered. Each member of his refugee band emerged from behind torn red curtains and propelled themselves, in the manner of their species, into or above the ring, depending on their chosen act. He knew the acts meant little. The crowd came not to see feats of acrobatics or strength, but to gawk at otherworldly strangeness, to watch aliens bow in submission before the mighty human. Trelane's circus consisted of the remnants of the subjugated races of a score of worlds, victims of the entity's resource extraction or terraforming projects. The stone puppies, lumbering silica beasts of slate-sided bulk, Guppert the Strong, squat, bulbous-limbed refugee from the crushing gravity and equally crushing mining of Mendelus too. Farron, the fox child, his people hunted down like animals on Fandor 4, and the angels, always the angels. 
but curled in the dirt in the cold cell, recalling last night, Trelane pushed away any thoughts of the angels, and of her. Yes, it had been a fine show, until Talana died, exploding in blood and brilliance high above the ring, after floating too near a torch. Trelane had bought the gas bag's creature's freedom a week before from an ip slaver, knowing that its species had been nearly wiped out. As pieces of the fat alien had fallen flaming into the crowd, Trelane's grip on reality had shattered like a funhouse mirror struck by a hammer. He could now recall only flashes of what had followed last night. People burning, screaming, panic, a stampede to the exits, his arrest. Nor could he remember doing any scream. He usually stayed clean before a show, but he knew what he felt now lying in his cell, the joy of the beating, the ecstasy of humiliation. He must have done a hit when the chaos began and the smell of burnt flesh reached him to escape the horror. Or to enter it, for with scream, horror opened a door to heaven. Someone cleared their throat in the cell. Trelane jumped, then shivered at the thrill of surprise. Moaning, he rolled onto his back on the floor and opened his eyes, struggling to orient himself. A man now sat on the cot in the cell, a man with a lean face and eyes that reminded Trelane of his own. He wore a long gray cloak with a major's rank and a small insignia on which a red R.I.P. hovered over a green planet split by a lightning bolt. The uniform of Rip Force. A uniform that Trelane had worn a lifetime ago. Gray meant special services. This man was Rip, but not a screamer. Rip kept senior officers and the SS clean. The man studied a percom unit held in a black-gloved hand, then looked down at Trelane and smiled. Hello, Captain Trelane, he said softly, as if he were addressing a child. Trelane swallowed. He was shaking and realized he had been since he had recognized the uniform. My name's not Trelane. I am Whites, the man said. The percom disappeared inside his cloak. And the blood sample I took from you confirms that you are Jason Lewiston Trelane, former captain and wing commander in the Entity's forces for the relocation of indigenous peoples, commonly known as Rip Force, convicted of treason in absentia three years ago, 2056-1205 A.D., presumed dead in the MCE raid on the rebel base on Darkon Three in 2057-08 26. Trelane licked his lips, savoring the flavor of his fear. You're a wanted man, Trelane. White's voice was soft, or would be, if the entity knew you were still alive. The scream in Trelane turned the threat in those words into a thrilling chill up his spine. He giggled. White sighed. I've never seen a screamer alive three years after Rip. Dead by their own hand inside a month, more likely. But then, most don't have their own source, do they? The implication of those words broke through the walls of scream in Trelane's mind. Whites represented real danger. To him, to those in the circus that depended on him. To her. Trelane struggled to focus on the man's words. Good choice. 
Whites was saying, not a spot the entity has any interest in now. You'd never see rippers here. White smiled. Unless they had ship trouble. I was in the next town waiting for repairs when I heard of a riot at a circus of Ips. Ips, IPs, indigenous peoples. A ripper slur for aliens. White stood up. You have an angel breeding pair, Captain, and I need them. He pushed open the cell door and walked out, leaving the door open. I've arranged for your release. You're free to go. Not that you can go far. We'll talk again soon. Looking back to where Trelane lay shivering, White shook his head. Jesus, Trelane, you used to be my hero. Trelane slumped back down on the floor, smiling as the smell of dirt and stale urine stung his throat. I used to be a lot of things, he said, as much to himself as to White's. White shook his head again. We'll talk soon, Captain. He turned and left the hut. Think of the human emotional response as a sine wave function, peaks and valleys. The peaks represent pleasure and the valleys pain. The greater your joy, the higher the peak. The greater your pain, the deeper the valley. Imagine a drug that takes the valleys and flips them, makes them peaks too. You react now to an event based not on the pleasure or pain inherent in it, but solely on the intensity of the emotion created. Pain brings pleasure, grief gives joy, horror renders ecstasy. Now give this drug to one who must perform an unpleasant task. No, worse than that, an immoral deed. Still worse, a nightmare act of chilling, terminal brutality. Give it to a soldier. Tell them to kill. Not in the historically acceptable murder we call war, but in a systematic corporate strategy, planned scheduled and budgeted, of xenocide. They will kill, and they will revel in it. Welcome to the world of Scream. Extract from Propaganda Data Bomb, launched on Fandor 4 ComCon by Rebel Forces, 2056-1005 AD. Attributed to Captain Jason L. Trelane during his subsequent trial in absentia for treason. Farron thought tonight's show was their finest, since the marvelous Talona had died, now a five-day-ago. From behind the red curtains that hid the performer's entrance, the young kit watched the two angels, Philomena and Procne, plummet from the top of the dome to swoop over the man-people crowd. Remembering how wonderfully the fat alien had burnt, Farron also recalled the captain explaining to him how that night had been bad. The captain had been forced to give much power stuff for the burnt man people and other things that Farron did not understand. The angels completed a complicated spiral dive, interweaving their descents. Linking arms just above the main ring, they finished with a dizzying spin like the top the captain had made him. They bowed to the applauding crowd, folding and unfolding diaphanous wings so the spotlight sparkled on the colors. Farron clapped his furred hands together as Mojo had taught him. Closing his earfolds to shut out the painful noise of the man-people. As the performers filed out for the closing procession around the center ring, Farron ran to take his spot behind the stone puppies. 
Guppert the Strong lifted Farron gently to place him on the slate-gray back of the nearest silica beast. "'Good show, little friend,' Guppert cried. His squat form waddled beside Farron. Guppert liked Longshot because it did not hold him to the ground, as did his home of Mendlos. "'Of course, Guppert never go home now.' He had told Farron once, his skin color darkening to show sadness. "'Off-planet too long.' Mendlos crushed Guppert, as if stone puppy step on Farron. But with Earth soldiers there in mecha suits, now Mendlos not home anyway. Waving to the crowd, the performers disappeared one by one through the red curtains. Farron leapt from the stone puppy, shouted a goodbye to Guppert, and then scurried off to search for Philomena. Outside the show dome, he sniffed the cool night air for her scent, found it, then turned and ran into the cutter. Whoa, Red, what's the rush? The tall, thin man scowled down at Farron like an angry mantis. The cutter was the healer for the circus. Helping us die in easy stages, more like it, was how the cutter had introduced himself when Farron had arrived. I seek the bird queen, Cutter, Farron replied. Sighing, Cutter jerked a thumb toward a small cluster of dome pods where the performers lived. Farron thought of it as the den area. Don't let him take too much, you hear? Farron nodded and ran off again, until a voice like wind in crystal trees halted him. You did well tonight, sharp ears. Farron turned. Philomela smiled down at him, white hair and pale skin, tall and thin, like an earthwoman stretched to something alien in a trick mirror. Even walking... She made Farron think of birds in flight. Philomela was beautiful. The captain had told him so many times. He would likely tell Farron again tonight, once he had breathed her dust that Farron brought him. Thank you, Bird Queen, Farron replied, bowing low with a sweep of his hand as the captain had taught him. Philomela laughed, and Farron bared his teeth in joy. He had made the beautiful bird lady laugh. The captain would be pleased. Procne came to stand behind Philomela, his spider-fingered hand circling her slim waist. Where do you go now, Farron? Does Mojo still have chores for you? He looked much like her, taller, heavier, but features still delicate, almost feminine. His stomach pouch skin rippled where the brood moved inside him. He goes to the captain's pod, Philomela said. They talk. About the times when the captain flew in the ships, don't you? Farron nodded. Procne's eyelids slid in from each side, leaving only a vertical slit. The times when those ships flew over our homes, you mean. Your home, too, Farron. Procne spun and stalked away, his wings pulled tight against his back. Farron stared after him, then up at Philomela. Did I do wrong, Bird Queen? Philomela folded and unfolded her wings. No, little one, no. My mate remembers too much, yet forgets much, too. She paused, as does the captain. She stroked Farron's fur where it lay red and soft between his large ears, then handed him a small pouch. Farron, tonight don't let the captain breathe too much of my dust. Get him to sleep early. He looks so... tired. Farron took the pouch and nodded. 
he decided he would not tell the captain of Philomela's face as she walked away. Merged Corporate Entity Incorporated Project Search Request Search Date 2059-06-02 Requester Whites David R. Major RIP Special Services Search Criteria Project World All Division Pharmacore Product Scream Context Field Ops Slash Post Imp Clearance Required a. 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 Your clearance? A. 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 Access granted. Search results follow. Scream mimics several classes of psychotropics, including psychomotor stimulants, antidepressants, and narcotic analgesics. It acts on both stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, but avoids hallucinogenic effects by maintaining neurotransmitter balance. It enhances sensory ability, speeds muscular reaction, and lessens nerve response to pain. It affects all three opiate receptors, inducing intense euphoria without narcotic drowsiness. Physical addiction is achieved by four to six ingestions at dosage prescribed in field ops release 2.21.7.1. Treated personnel exhibit significantly lowered resistance to violence. Secondary benefits for field operations include decreased fatigue, delayed sleep onset, and enhanced mental capacity. Negative side effects include uncontrolled masochistic or sadistic tendencies, such as self-mutilation or attacks on fellow soldiers. SCREAM is therefore not administered until military discipline and obedience programming is complete in boot camp. Long-term complications include paranoid psychosis and suicidal depression. Withdrawal is characterized by hallucinations, delirium, and seizures, terminating with strokes or heart attacks. Attempts to synthesize continue, but at present, our sole resource remains extraction from females of the dominant humanoids on Lania II, Xenosapiens Lania var angelis, colloquially scream angel. The liquid produced crystallizes into powder form, since the drug is tied to reproduction, see Xenobiology, Linnea, Life Forms, 1275. Ensuring supply requires an inventory of breeding pairs with brood delivery dates spread evenly over... File transfer request acknowledged. Xenobiology file, Linnea, Life Forms, 1275. The adult female produces the drug from mammary glands at all times, but at higher levels in the reproductive cycle. Sexual coupling occurs at both the start and end of the cycle. The first act impregnates the female. The brood develops in her until delivery after 30 weeks in what the original Toplowski journal called the larval form, transferring then to the male's pouch via orifices in his abdominal wall. For the next 19 weeks, they feed from the male, who ingests large quantities of scream from the female. The brood's impending release as matured nestlings prompts the male to initiate the final coupling. Trelane lay in his sleep pod at the circus waiting for Farron and the hit of scream that the kit brought each night. The meeting with Whites had burst a dam of times past, flooding with memories. He closed his eyes, 
his face wet with delicious tears. Though all his dreams were nightmares, he did not fear them. Terror was now but another form of pleasure. Sleep at least freed him from the tyranny of decision. Twenty again. My first action. I remember. Remember? I'd give my soul to forget if my soul remains for me to barter. Bodies falling against a slate-gray sky. The rip transports on Fandor 4 were huge oblate spheroids, flattened and wider in the middle at the ends. Trelane and almost 100 other rippers occupied the jump seats that lined the perimeter of the main bay, facing in, officers near the cockpit. Before them, maybe a hundred Fandor natives huddled on the metal floor, eyes downcast but constantly darting around the holds and over their captors. The adults were about five feet tall and humanoid, but their soft red facial hair, pointed snouts and ears gave them a feral look. The children reminded Trelane of a stuffed toy he had as a child. Fresh from Rip Boot Camp, this was to be his first action. These Fandore came from a village located over rich mineral deposits, soon to be an entity mining operation. They were to be relocated to an island off the west coast. He added the quotes in response to a growing suspicion, fed by overheard jokes shared by Rip veterans. He also recalled arriving on Fandor, scanning the ocean on the approach to the Rip base on the west shore. There were no islands off the coast. The other rippers shifted and fidgeted, waiting for their first hit of the day. The life support system of their field suits released screamed directly into their blood. Once each suit's computer received the transmitted command from the Rip Force unit leader, if you wanted your scream, you suited up and followed orders. And God, you wanted your scream. His unit had been on scream since the end of boot camp. Trelane knew he was addicted. He knew that Rip wanted him and all his unit addicted. He just didn't know why. He had also noticed that no one in his unit had family. No one would miss any of them. Another reason to follow orders. Twenty minutes out from the coast, a major unbuckled his boot harness and nodded to a captain to his right. Every ripper watched as the captain hit a button on his wrist pad. The scream came like the remembered sting of an old wound. A friend that you hadn't seen in years and once reunited, you wondered why you had missed them. The captain's voice barked in their headsets, ordering them out of their harnesses. Trelane rose as one with the other rippers, stab-rod charged and ready, the scream in him twisting his growing horror into the anticipation of ecstasy. The Fandori huddled closer together in the middle of the bay. The captain punched another button. Trelane felt the deck thrumming through his boots as the center bay doors split open. The Fandori leapt up, grabbing their young and skittering back from the widening hole only to face an advancing wall of rippers with lowered stab rods. Some of the Fandori chose to leap. Some were pushed by their own people in the panic. Others fell on the stab rods or died huddled over their young. Trelane pulled a kit no more than a year from under a dead female. He held the child in his arms, waiting his turn as the rippers in front of him lifted or pushed the remaining bodies through the bay doors. When he reached the edge, Trelane lifted the kit from his shoulder and held it over the opening. It did not squirm or cry, 
only stared in mute accusation. Trelane let go, then knelt to peer over the edge. A salt wind stung sharp and cold where it crept under his helmet. He watched the kit fall to hit the rough gray sea a hundred feet below. Most of the bodies had already slipped beneath the waves. The kit disappeared to join them. A nausea that even scream could not deflect seized Trelane. Pushing back from the edge, he wrenched his visor up to gasp in air. A ripper beside him turned to him, and for a brief moment, Trelane caught his own reflection in the man's mirrored visor. The image burned into his memory as he fought to reconcile the horror engulfing him with the grinning mask of his own face. Dreaming still. Falling still. Falling in love. Trelane made captain in a year, as high as screamers could rise in rip. He took no pride in it. When the scream ran low in him, his guilt rose black and bottomless. But his addiction was now complete. Withdrawal for a screamer meant weeks of agony, without the filter of scream, then death. The entity was his only source. He did what he was told. Rippers burnt out fast on Project Worlds, so the entity rotated them off reload work every six months for a four-week tour on a processed world. Trelane's first tour after making Captain was on Linnea, the angel home planet, arranging transport of angel breeding pairs from Linnea to Project Worlds with Rip Force units. The entity had found that, with angels on planet, concerns over scream delivery could be put aside for that world. Sex with an angel, said Rip veterans, was the ultimate high. But upon arrival, Trelane had found them too alien, too thin and wraith-like, he decided that their reputation was due more to ingesting uncut scream during sex than their ethereal beauty. Then he saw her. She was one of a hundred angels being herded into a cargo shuttle that would dock with an orbiting jump ship. Angels staggered by Trelane, their eyes downcast. He started to turn away when he saw her, striding with head held high, glaring at the guards. She turned as she passed him, their eyes locked. He ordered her removed from the shipment. That is how he met her, as her captor, then her liberator, then her lover. The earth name she had taken was Philomela. Her angel name could not be pronounced by a human throat. She brought him joy and pain. He was never sure what he brought her. She gave herself willingly, and her pleasure in their lovemaking seemed so sincere that he sometimes let himself believe, believe that she clung to him in those moments, not to a desperate hope for freedom. That she did not hate him for what Rip had done to her people. That she loved him. But Scream strangled such moments. Though not on combat doses, he still needed it for physical dependencies. On low doses, depression clouded life in a gray mist. Could she love him when he doubted his own love for her? Why was he drawn to her? Sex? His private source of scream? To wash his hands clean by saving one of his victims? And always between them loomed an impassable chasm. They were separate species who could never be truly mated. 
The news reached him one rare afternoon as they lay together in his quarters. His percom unit, hanging on the wall above them, began to buzz like an angry insect. He pulled it down and read the message from the cutter, the medic in his unit. She watched him as he read, Jace, is something wrong? He'd come to expect her empathy. Whether she could now read his human expressions or sense his mood, he didn't know. He threw the unit away as if it had stung him and covered his face with a hand. Mojo, one of my men, a friend. He's fallen. Is he? He's alive. No serious injuries. As if that mattered. Do you think he tried to take his life? No, he said, though the drug in him screamed yes. Many do. No, not Mojo. But he knew she was right. Suicide was common with screamers, and joining the fallen was a favored method, a dive that you never came out of. The entity punished any survivors brutally. Screamers were easily replaced, but one last jet could cut the return on a project world by a full point. Now comes the judging your people do? she asked. Court-martial. Two weeks. If they found Mojo guilty, they would discharge him. No source of scream. Better to have died in the crash, he thought. He got out of bed and began dressing. I have to leave Lania. Return to my base. Try to help him. They will judge against him. You will not change that. I know, but I have to try. He has no one else. She turned away. We have few moments together. She was shaking, and he realized that she was crying. He misunderstood. I'll be back soon. It'll be better then. She shook her head and looked up at him. I mean, that we have few moments left. It is my time. He stood there staring down at her. What do you mean? I must produce a brood. She turned away again. You mean you will take a mate? One of your own kind? His name is Procne, she said, still not looking at him. He didn't know what to do or say, so he kept dressing. She turned to him. I love you, she said quietly. He stopped. She waited. He said nothing. She lay down, sobbing. He swallowed and formed the thought in his mind, opened his mouth to tell her that he loved her, too, when she spoke again. What will become of me? she asked. All his doubts about her rushed in to drown the words in his mouth. He was but a way of escape to her. She did not love him. She would give herself to one of her own. She was alien. The angels hated Rip for what they had done. She hated him. He pulled on his jacket and turned away. The trial. I tried, Mojo. But nothing can save us when we fall, and we were falling the moment they put it in our blood. The day after Mojo's trial, Trelane entered the Rip Barracks pod. The Cutter and two other Rippers sat on drop bunks watching Mojo stuff his few possessions into a canister pack. Mojo wore his old civvies, now at least a size too small. He still had a metastim in his arm and moved with a limp. The others jumped to attention when they saw their visitor. Cutter just nodded. Trelane returned the salutes, then motioned toward the door. After a few words and half-hearted slaps on Mojo's back, they filed out, 
leaving Trelane and Mojo alone. Mojo sat down on his bunk. Thanks, Cap. Hell of a try. Trelane sat, forcing a smile. You forget we lost? Mojo shrugged. Never had a chance. You know that none of us do. Just a matter of time. If the scream don't get you, they will. No way out for the likes of us. Trelane searched Mojo's broad face. I have to try, he thought. We won't get another chance. Maybe there is a way. Narrowing his eyes, Mojo glanced at the door and back again. He looked grim. I'm with you, Cap. Whatever. Wherever. Trelane shook his head. They'll kill us if we're caught. I'm a dead man already. We all are. Trelane sighed and started talking. And so the fallen dreamed of rising again, eh, Mojo? What fools we were. But we gave them a run for a while, didn't we? Trelane returned to Linnea. In his absence, Philomela had taken Procne as her mate. She refused to see Trelane. He added her and Procne to the next cargo of angels being shipped to the Project Worlds with himself as the ship's captain. He did not see her until after their ship had made the first jump. Philomela was summoned to the captain's cabin to be told which planet she and her mate had been consigned. She stiffened when she entered and saw him. You. He nodded and waited. Sending us into slavery to be bred and milked like animals? This was not enough. You had to be here to see it happen, did you, Jason? She looked around. Where is the captain? I am the captain on this ship. She looked confused. But you have never gone on these. He sighed. Please sit. I have much to say. Why did I risk everything to save her? Love? Guilt? As penance? For her scream? In a desperate hope that one day she would turn to me again? Or, as I fell, was I willing to grasp at anything, even if I pulled those I loved down with me? From the ship's observation deck, Trelane and Philomela watched a shuttle depart, carrying a shipment of twenty pairs of angels for the project world below. Do you know why I chose my earth name? she asked. Her voice was flat, dead, but he heard the pain that each of these words brought her as more of her people were torn away, while she remained safe, protected. No, tell me, he said. In a legend on your planet, Philomela was a girl turned into a nightingale by the gods. That image pleased me, to be chosen by the gods, elevated to the heavens. Only later did I learn that the nightingale is also a symbol of death. Trelane bowed his head. Fie, there's nothing. No, but allow me at least my bitterness and guilt. Guilty of being spared by him. She and Procne spared only because an addict and xenocide and soon-to-be traitor needed his drug source close. He had stopped trying to examine his motives beyond that. The scream would mock the small voice in him that spoke of a last remnant of honor and noble intent. My sister is on that shuttle, Philomela said quietly. Trelane said nothing, for there was nothing to say. They watched the tiny ship 
fall toward the planet below. At each planet on that trip, we gathered to us the castoffs, the unwanted, the remnants of a dozen races, together with the fallen, and then, suddenly, there was no turning back. Tulane's first officer, a young lieutenant commander named Glandis, confronted him on the bridge. She wasn't backing down this time. Captain, I must again register my concern over continued irregularities in your command of this mission. Trelane glanced at the monitor by his chair. Mojo and eleven other ex-rippers were disembarking from a shuttle in the ship's docking bay. In two minutes, they would be on the bridge. He tapped a command, deactivating all internal communications and alarms. He turned to Glandis. Irregularities? The IP cargo we have acquired at each of our stops? Those people are to be transported to the entity's product R&D center on Earth, Trelane responded. Glandis snorted. What research could the entity conduct with? She read her percom. A Mendlos subject? Physiological adaptation to high grav, Trelane replied. A Fandore kit? A Fanaruchi viper egg? Biotech oral receptor design and neural poison mutagenics development. One minute more, he thought. Glandis hesitated, some of the confidence leaving her face. You have also protected one specific breeding pair of angels for purposes that have yet to be made clear to me. They, too, are slated for entity research. Trelane rose. Thirty seconds. Synthesization of Scream. What about this stop? It was not on our filed flight plan. Late orders from Rip Force Command. Fifteen seconds. I was not informed. You just were. Glandis reddened. And what purpose will a dozen disgraced ex-members of Rip Force serve? Now, thought Trelane. The door to the bridge slid open. Mojo and four other ex-rippers burst in. Tanzer rifles charged and pointed at Glandis and the bridge crew. Glandis turned to Trelane with mouth open, then froze. Trelane had his own weapon leveled at Glandis. Their purpose, I'm afraid, is to replace the crew of this ship. And so the fallen rose again, to scale a precipice from which there was no retreat, and each new height we gained only made the final fall that much farther. After leaving the Bird Queen, Farron ran past the closed tubes of the Barkers, the Games of Chance, and the sleep pods of the performers. The kit moved easily among the ropes, refuse, and equipment, his path cleared to him even in the dim light of the sputtering torches and an occasional hovering glow-globe. The show used fewer glow-globes than when Farron had first arrived. The captain said the globes cost too much now. Farron didn't mind. He needed a little light to see, and he liked the smell of the torches and the crackle they made. Turning a corner, Farron froze. Weasel Man stood outside the captain's pod. The captain said that the man's name was White's, but he reminded Farron of the animals the kit hunted in the woods outside the circus. The door opened. Weasel Man stepped inside. Farron crept to the open window at the pod side. He could hear voices. His nose twitched. His ears snapped up and opened wide, adjusting until the sound was the sharpest. Trelane lay on his sleep pod bunk, shaking from withdrawal. Farron was late bringing his nightly hit. White's lounged in a chair, staring at him. 
It had been five days since their meeting in the jail. Where have you been, Whites? Trelane wheezed. Had some arrangements to make. Need a hit, don't you? It's coming, Trelane mumbled. What do you want? White shrugged. I told you, the angels. But not to hand them back to the entity, or you'd have done that by now, Trelane said. But if White's wanted the angels, why didn't he just take them? He had his own men and a ship. White smiled. Do you know there are rebels on Fandor 4? Rebels? What are you talking about? Where was Farron? Ex-rip rebels, like you, or rather, like you once were. Like me? God, then I pity the rebels on Fandor 4. Whites leaned forward in his chair. I'm one of them. Trelane laughed. You're Rip SS. I assist from the inside. I supply them with scream. Trelane stared at Whites. This man was far more dangerous than he had first appeared. You've managed to surprise me, Major. Why would you risk your life for a bunch of rebels? Whites shrugged. I said you were my hero. The man who defied an empire. I want to do my part, too. Trelane snorted, out of the goodness of your heart. Whites reddened. I cover my costs, no more. I'll bet, Trelane thought. Where do you get Scream? I acquired a store doing an SS audit of a rip warehouse. You stole it. A store? Since when can you store Scream? White smiled. A result of intense research prompted by your escape with the angels. You made the entity realize the risk of transporting breeding pairs. Angels are now kept in secure facilities on Linnea and two other worlds, producing Scream that's shipped to Project Worlds with RIP forces. Angels live and die without ever leaving the facility they were born into. Trelane shuddered. Because of him. But the Scream in him ran too low to find any joy in this new horror. They fell silent. Finally, White spoke. So what happened, Trelane? To the great rebel leader... To the one man who stood up to the entity. How'd it all go to hell? Screamers are in hell already. We were trying to get out. You got out in a stolen entity cruiser. Then what? Shivering, Trelane struggled to sit up. Where was Farron? We jumped to a system the entity had already rejected. Only one habitable planet. No resources worth the extraction cost and set up a base for a guerrilla war on the entity. No, a colony. A home for the dispossessed races. You attacked entity project worlds, White said. We sent messages. There was never any physical assault. Your data bombs flooded comm systems for entire planets. We tried to make people aware of what the entity was doing. Almost worked. Trelane fought withdrawal, trying to focus on White's. The man was afraid of something, but what? I'll say. You cost them trillions hushing it up, flushing systems. But then what? The reports just end. The entity still has a file on us? That pleased Trelane. On you, White's corrected. You've got your own entire file sequence. Special clearance needed to get at them. Well? Trelane fell silent, remembering the day, remembering his guilt. I got careless. They tracked us through a jump somehow, found the colony, 
T-beamed it from orbit. An entire planet. My God, Whites whispered. A few of us escaped, but not Fee's children. Her first brood. More guilt. Though she'd never blamed him. In a heavily armed cruiser with a crew of ex-rippers. He looked at Whites. That was it. Even through the haze of withdrawal, he knew he had his answer. Whites thought Trelane still had a band of ex-rippers at hand. Battle-proven, trained killers with superhuman reflexes and their own scream supply. Something like Hope tried to fight through the black despair of his withdrawal. Whites would try to deal first. And this? Whites took in the circus with a wave of his hand. After we lost the base, we had to keep moving. As a cover story to clear immigration on each world, I concocted a circus of aliens. Then I ran out of money. Had to do it for real. What if someone had recognized you, or knew about angels? Trelane struggled to speak. We avoided anywhere with an entity presence, stayed off the main jump routes. He started to shiver. Why do you want angels if you have a store of scream? My supply will run out, and I can't count on stealing more. Trelane stared at Whites. So what's the deal? Whites smiled. Why do you think I won't just take them? Against a crew of ex-rippers pumped on scream? Whites' smile faded. He studied Trelane. Okay, let's assess your position. One, I gave your ship's beacon signature to long-shot space defense. If you run, you'll be caught. Trelane said nothing. Two, if you're caught, your IP pals get sent back to their homeworlds, and you know what that means. Trelane stayed silent, but his skin went cold. Three, you, Mojo, and the medic get executed for treason. Like I said, what's the deal? White studied Trelane again, then finally spoke. Both angels for my store of scream, a lifetime supply for you and your men. I lift the order on your ship and turn my back as you and your band jump. Your life goes on with scream, but no angels. Life goes on, if you called this life. That much scream was worth a fortune, but nowhere near the value of a breeding pair. So there it was. Betray his love or die. What choice did he have? Refuse, and whites would turn them over to the entity, and all would die. Run, and be killed or caught by the planetary fleet. Give her up, along with Procne, and at least the others would be free. Besides, she had turned from him, taken one of her own. She had only used him to escape. Had always used him. She was an alien and hated him for what he had done to her race. She had never really loved him. All that stood against this were the remnants of his love for her, and a phantom memory of the man he had once been. Outside, Farron waited for the captain's reply to Weaselman. He didn't know what the captain would do, but he knew it would be brave and noble. Farron listened for the sound of the captain leaping to his feet and striking Weaselman to the floor. But when a sound came, it was only the captain's voice, small and hoarse. All right, was all he said. You'll do it. That was Weaselman. Farron did not hear a reply. Tomorrow morning, Weaselman again. The door opened and Farron scooted under the pod. Weaselman stepped out, smiling. Farron had seen sand babies smile like that on Fandor, just before they spit their venom in your eyes. 
As he watched the man walk away, fading into the darkness, something inside Farron faded away as well. He stood staring into the shadows for a long time, then turned and entered the pod. The captain lay in his sleeping place. He seemed not to notice Farron. The kit put the pouch from the bird queen on the table, then left without a word. The captain did not call after him. How long Farron wandered the grounds, he did not know. Sometime later, he found the cutter and mojo sitting in front of a fire burning on an old heat shield panel from the ship. Seen Captain Farron? asked Mojo. Farron just nodded. He's had his bottle, all tucked in for the night? the cutter asked. Farron nodded again as Mojo scowled at the cutter. They sat silently for a while. Does it hurt when you lose someone you love? Farron asked, ashamed of the fear in his voice, the fear that he felt for Philomela. The cutter spoke. Hurts even more to lose him slowly. Watch him disappear bit by bit till nothing's left you remember. Farron knew the cutter meant the captain. Shut up, cutter, Mojo growled. You've never been there. Only a screamer knows what he lives with. He patted Farron's head. Never mind, kid. The cutter shook his head, but spoke no more. Farron rose and walked slowly away to once again wander the circus grounds. This time, however, something resolved itself inside his young mind, so that when he found himself outside the sleep pot of the angels, he interpreted this as a sign that his plan was pure. The bird queen was alone. She spoke little as he told his tale, a question here or there when the words he chose were poor. She thanked him, then sat in silence, her strange eyes staring out the round window of the pod. Farron left the angel then, not knowing whether he had done good or evil, yet somehow aware that his world was a much different place than it had been an hour before. Search results continued. Xenobiology file, Linnea, life forms, 1,275. The impending release of a brood of mature nestlings prompts the male angel to initiate final coupling. This act triggers the female's production of higher concentrations of scream. Scream is the sole nourishment that the young can ingest upon emergence, and also relieves the agony of the male after the brood bursts from him. The female must receive the nestlings within hours of the final coupling, or she will die from the higher scream level in her blood, which the nestlings cleanse from her system. The evolutionary advantage of this reproductive approach appears to stem from the increased survival expectations of a brood carried by the stronger male and the ensured presence of both parents at birth. Although Toplowski drew parallels to the Thendote on Thendlos IV, we feel... Unable to sleep, Farron rose early the next day. A chill mist hung from a gray sky. For an hour, he wandered outside the big dome, worrying how to tell the captain what he had done and why. He stopped. Toward him strode the captain, with Mojo at his side. Both wore their old, long black cloaks, thrown back to reveal weapons strapped to each leg. The gunmetal glinted blue and cold, matching the look in the captain's eyes. Farron felt all his fears of the previous night vanish like grass swimmers in the brush. The captain was going to fight. He would beat Weaselman, and all would be well. The cutter stepped out of the dome, and the captain and Mojo stopped beside Farron. The captain reached down to ruffle the fur on Farron's head, then glanced toward the dome. Ready? 
The cutter nodded. Just get him inside. A cry made them turn. Prockney ran toward them, stumbling with the bulging weight of the brood inside him. She's gone! She's gone! he cried. He fell gasping into the cutter's arms. Farron went cold inside. The talking box on the captain's belt beeped. He lifted it to his face. It's from Fee. Time delayed delivery from last night. They waited as he read. When he spoke, his voice was raspy, like when he took too much dust. She's given herself to Whites. She knows that I won't surrender her and Pro, that I'll fight. She doesn't wish me or any of us to die. He dropped the device in the dirt. She knows me better than myself, it would seem, he whispered. Our brood, Prockney began. She says she would rather her children die than live as slaves, kept only to feed monsters that destroy races. No, our final coupling was last night. The brood comes! He placed a thin hand on his pouch. The essence they must feed on is rising in their blood. If she is not there when they emerge, they will die. If they die without cleansing her... She will die, too, the captain finished. She knew this. Mojo frowned. How'd she know about whites? You only told me and Cutter, and just this morning. The captain shook his head. Cutter shrugged. Farron felt as if he were outside his body, watching this scene, but not part of it, unable to act. Well, he had acted, and this was what had come of it. He heard a voice saying, I told her. It seemed to be coming from somewhere else, and only when they all turned to look at him did he realize he had spoken. Silence fell. The captain knelt down before him, and all the words that Farron had tried to find before came pouring out. He turned his head, bearing his throat to the captain, offering his life. Instead, warm arms encircled him and held him tight. Farron knew that this was a hug and found it oddly comforting. The captain whispered, Oh, Farron, and Farron began to sob. So now what? The cutter growled as the captain stood. They waited. Then the captain spoke, his voice as calm as when he told Farron a story. Same plan, with one change. We need Pro with us. He turned to Prockney, and Farron felt a stillness settle, like before two alpha males fought. You and I, we've never quite got it straight between us. Just knew that she somehow needed us both. You never forgave, never trusted me. Can't say I ever blamed you. Well, I'm asking you to trust me now, if only because you know I wouldn't hurt her. Prockney stared at the captain for several of Farron's heartbeats, then nodded. The captain turned to the cutter. Take Pro inside. Make it look like his hands are tied. He spoke then to all of them. Nobody moves till I do, and I won't move until I know where he's got Fi. And remember, we need Whites alive. Muttering under his breath, the cutter pulled Farron into the dome. Farron looked back. The captain and Mojo strode toward the main entrance. Their long cloaks closed, hiding their weapons and shutting out the rain that began to fall hard and cold. Inside, Farron saw Guppert standing beside two stone puppies. He scampered over to them, glad to leave the morose cutter, then stopped. Weapons were strapped to one side of the great silica beast, the side hidden from the door. The puppies lay on the ground, and Guppert's shoulder came to the top of their backs. Guppert grinned and wrapped a fat fist on the slate side of the nearest ones. Puppies make good fort, Guppert thinks. He pointed to the ground. 
This where you come, little one, with Guppert, when I give word. He waddled around to the other side of the puppies, where water buckets and scrub brushes lay. Now we get busy looking not dangerous. He and Farron began scrubbing the puppies. The cutter stood with Prockney between them and the entrance, Prockney's hands bound behind him. Farron heard them first. They are here, he whispered. Cutter nodded. A few seconds later, two men in RIP SS uniforms entered with guns. They looked around, then one called outside. All clear! Weaselman came in, then the captain and Mojo, and more men in SS uniforms. Farron counted, his hope fading as each one entered. Ten, plus the first two, and Weaselman. Four carried a metal case, their guns slung. Thirteen. Damn, I hate thirteen, muttered the cutter as he left Prockney and sauntered toward a puppy. Still scrubbing, Guppert moved to the hidden side of his beast. Farron followed. Weaselman looked around. Where's the rest of your crew? The captain shrugged. Dead or deserted. Weaselman raised an eyebrow and glanced at his men. The captain nodded at the case. That our stuff? He asked, pulling back a sleeve to reveal a metastim pack. He hit a button on it. Farron knew that he had just taken a hit. Mojo did the same. Weaselman wrinkled his brow. It was going to be. The captain smiled. But you've reconsidered. We have the female already, Weaselman said. Her name is Philomela, the captain said. And you're outnumbered. The captain nodded. Just a bunch of old derelicts. So now I think we'll just take this one, too. His name is Prockney. The captain hit the stim pack again. So did Mojo. Farron had never seen the captain take two hits. So you'll leave me and Mojo to die in slow agony. Weaselman shifted on his feet. Farron smelt his fear. The man nodded at the case. That's worth a fortune. And you have to cover your costs, don't you? Where is she? the captain said, taking a third hit. On my ship, hovering above us waiting for my call. Weaselman patted his talking device. Now, why don't... Being a predator, Farron was the first, other than the captain, to know that the moment had arrived. The killing moment. And in that moment, for the first time, Farron realized something. The captain was a predator, too. Weaselman was still talking. This over with... The captain and Mojo, moving faster than Farron thought men could move, threw back their cloaks and pulled their guns. The captain shot Weaselman twice, once through his gun arm and once through his leg. The air sizzled as Mojo fired, killing three before they could even raise their weapons. The captain shot three more before Weaselman hit the ground, screaming. Farron closed his ear flaps to shut out the screams, his nose stinging from the burnt air smell. The Cutter and Guppert shot one ripper each from behind the puppies. The last four, who had kept their guns slung, died still reaching for their guns. As he watched, Farron felt only fear. Not of the killing, for he knew killing, but fear of the look on the captain's face. The captain stepped over the bodies to where Weaselman lay like a trapped animal. Call your ship. Tell them to land outside this dome to pick up the other angel. Weaselman spat blood. Screw you! The captain put his gun against Weaselman's forehead. The man swallowed but shook his head. You wouldn't kill an unarmed man in cold blood, Trelane. You aren't capable of it. But 
For the twitching of one eye, the captain seemed carved from stone. Then he laughed. He laughed and laughed until Farron felt fear again, fear that he did not really know this man. Suddenly, the captain reached down and with one hand lifted Weasel Man by the throat and held him off the ground. Farron had no words for what he saw in the captain's eyes as his voice boomed inside the dome. I have ripped babies from mothers' arms. I have killed thousands and laughed while they died. I have ended races. Little man, I am capable of things you could never imagine. The captain dropped him and looked down at the man, and Farron heard the sadness in the captain's voice as he almost whispered, I am capable of anything. Weasel Man lay gasping in the dirt. Then he looked up, and Farron knew the captain had won. Weasel Man was baring his belly and neck, showing submission. He took his talking device with a shaking hand and spoke into it. Farron couldn't hear the words, but the captain nodded to the others. Farron relaxed. Guppert and the Cutter were slapping each other on their backs. Mojo sat slumped on the ground, his head between his knees, sobbing but apparently unhurt. A cry cut the air. Farron spun, teeth bared. High above, Procne hovered, wings beating, head thrown back, face contorted in agony. His pouch bulged, then split as a cloud of bloody winged things burst from him and fell screeching toward them. The brood had arrived. Trelane had not taken combat doses of Scream for over two years. The killing and the joy it had brought had shaken him. Now, as the brood rained down bloody chaos from above, he felt his tenuous grip on reality slipping away. Knowing that the brood must live or Fee would die, he tried to follow what they were doing. But the Scream kept drawing him to the bloody corpses. He realized then the brood was also being drawn to them. Resembling winged toads with humanoid faces, gray and slick, the brood swarmed over the bodies, driving a long tendril that protruded from their abdomen into any open wound, but they stayed only a second at each spot, and with each attempt became more frenzied. Scream, he thought. They need blood with scream. Trelane! The cry spun Trelane around. Whites knelt, Tanzer held in a shaking hand, Blood soaked an arm and leg and flowed from his forehead. Whites leveled the gun at Trelane. The brood found Whites before he could fire, swarming him, plunging their tendrils into each wound, into his eyes, where blood had run down from his forehead, probing, searching. Screaming, he clawed at them, then stiffened and fell forward. The nestlings leapt up from his corpse to form a shrieking, swirling mass above the ring. They were tiring. They are dying, Trelane thought. Blood with scream, blood with scream. He tore open his shirt, pulling a knife from his belt. He slashed his chest and upper arms. He dropped the knife and stood with arms outspread, blood streaming down from him, waiting for the smell of the scream in his blood to reach the brood. They swooped down from above the ring, swarming him like bees on honey, driving their tendrils into his flesh wherever he bled. The pain surpassed even what scream let him endure. A dark chasm yawned below him, and he felt himself falling. Trelane awoke on his back, pale green light illuminating a bulkhead above him. The weight pressing him into the bed and the throb of engines told him 
He was on a ship under acceleration. Something was wrong. No. Something was right. Finally, he felt right. He felt human. He felt... Pain. Real pain. Pain that hurt. He tried to rise. The captain has returned to us. It was Farron's voice. In more ways than one, Fox boy. In more ways than one. The cutter's face appeared above him. Last still, for Christ's sakes. You'll open the wounds again. Trelane lay back, gasping. What happened? We won. We took White's ship. Mojo? Procne? Fi? Where's Fi? He wheezed. Her voice came from across the room. All your family is safe. Guppert, the puppies, all are here with us. Trelane twisted his head. She lay on another bunk, Procne asleep beside her. Didn't know I had a family, he said weakly. We knew, Jason Trelane. All along, we were your family. The cutter moved aside, and Trelane could see the brood clinging to her. She smiled. Yes, you saved my children. I haven't seen that smile in a long time, Fi. I have not had reason for a long time. I feel... I feel... You feel true pain, and you wonder why. Only then did Trelane realize that one of the brood lay beside him and that the tiny creature still had its tendril inside him. He tried to move it away. Last still, damn it, the cutter snapped. This ugly little vacuum cleaner hasn't quite got you cleansed up yet. What are you talking about? The cutter checked a monitor on the wall above the bunk. The brood's feeding reduced the scream in your blood to almost nil. The big bonus is zero withdrawal signs. Remember when you tried to kick it? When we started the colony? Trelane nodded, shuddering at the memory. The cutter rubbed his chin. These little suckers must leave something behind in the blood. Let's the body adjust to lower levels of scream. Angels would need the same thing when the brood feeds on them. He looked at Trelane. You just bought a new life for every screamer the entity ever got hooked. As the implication of that sat in, Mojo's face appeared at the door. One of the brood clung to him as well. We're nearing the jump insertion point. Where are we headed, Cap? Silence fell, and Trelane could sense them waiting for his answer. He remembered something Whites had said and smiled through his pain. I hear there are still rebels on Fandor 4. Mojo grinned and disappeared toward the bridge with Cutter. Trelane turned to Farron. The kit moved away. Trelane's smile faded as he understood. He stared at the kit, then spoke very quietly. Farron, the Captain Trelane that you saw in that dome today, he died with those other men. Do you understand? An eternity passed. Then Farron ran to him and hugged him far too hard, and it hurt. His wounds hurt. The nestling at his side hurt. God, it all hurt. And it was wonderful to hurt again and want it to stop. Later, the ship slowed for the jump. Then weightlessness took him. But to Trelane, the sensation this time was not of falling. Instead, he felt himself rising, rising above something he was finally leaving behind. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Douglas Smith. Douglas, thank you so much for that. And Brian, what can I say? Brian, thank you so much. Links are on to Douglas and to Brian. Please pop over there and say hello. So next up is our very own... Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and rhinospherical vibroablations, my unilaterally forgulated listeners. And welcome to this November 2016 science news update. I'm your host for this pontifically adumbrated science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. My, my, but the world has changed a great deal since I last spoke to you. I hesitate to make comments on the new political milieu that we all find ourselves in now, but let's just say I hope that the actuality of global warming and evolution can be recognized by the new powers that be, whether their ultimate causes are understood or not, and that the importance of science be recognized as well as more than a financial device to make more money. Anyway, let's talk about science. I want to head myself off before I say more than I should. First story. Those regular listeners may remember last month I was talking about microbiomes and the obese and how there seems to be little evidence that obese people have different microbiomes. During my little talk, I made fun of several imaginary headlines that suggested that microbiomes have been connected with a whole series of health issues, including, is your microbiome making you a Nazi? Well, Imagine my amusement when I came across this headline in the journal The Scientist, based on the work from the lab of Dr. Antonio Gonzalez of UC San Diego. And this is seriously what it was. Does your microbiome give you migraines? Quote unquote. The original journal article was published in M Systems, and it suggests that the stunning migraines that affect 38 million Americans may be caused by their oral microbiome. Gonzalez says, quote, There is an idea out there that certain foods trigger migraines. Chocolate, wine, and especially foods containing nitrates. We thought that perhaps there are connections between what people are eating, their microbiomes, and their experiences with migraines, unquote. Gonzalez's team studied stool and oral sample metagenomes collected by the American Gut Project, which has supplied hundreds of bacterial samples from fat people, skinny people, migraine-ridden people, peeps who climb on rocks, tough peeps, sissy peeps, even peeps with chicken pox. 
Sorry, got carried away there. I suspect the older among you may recognize that. They measured the abundance of nitrate, nitrite, and nitric oxide reductase genes and compared the values from volunteers who reported experiencing regular migraines with those who did not. While stool samples showed only moderate increases in these genes, oral samples showed significant increases in their prevalence in samples taken from migraine sufferers. They sequenced 16S RNA, and they found that those people with migraines had much higher levels of nitrate-reducing bacteria in their mouths than people who didn't get migraines. Further analysis indicated that the prevalence of these bacteria was driven by the host physiology. Green leafy vegetables, some yellow fruits, and cured meats are common sources of dietary nitrates. Humans rely on bacteria in the mouth to reduce them to nitrites, which can later be converted to nitric oxide, NO, in the blood. Nitric oxide offers important cardiac benefits by lowering blood pressure and improving blood flow, but it also has been implicated in severe headaches by mediating vasodilation. Gonzalez says, quote, We definitely think this pathway is advantageous to cardiovascular health. We now also have a potential connection to migraines, though it remains to be seen whether these bacteria are a cause or a result of the migraines or are indirectly linked in some other way, unquote. Gonzalez now plans to look into correlations between bacterial expression of the nitrate-reducing genes and the level of circulating nitric oxide in the blood among patients suffering from different types of migraines. Gonzalez hopes that one day there might be, quote, a magical probiotic mouthwash, unquote, to keep these bacteria and their nitrate-reducing activities in check. But for now, he says that if you suspect that nitrates are causing you migraines, you should try to avoid them in your diet and see if you get better. Next story, dolphin proteins and deep, deep diving. Dolphins and other marine mammals can survive deep dives that provide vital organs of oxygen without causing damage. The same scenario for humans that would be lethal. During dives that can last as long as 90 minutes, marine mammals restrict blood flow to their kidneys, liver, heart, and lungs to shunt more oxygen to the brain. A new article from Dr. Michael Janich in the journal Scientific Reports entitled Proteomic Analysis of Non-Depleted Serum Proteins from Bottlenose Dolphins Uncovers a High Vannin-1 Phenotype suggests that a particular protein may be responsible for dolphins' ability to dive so deeply. Janich from the University of South Carolina is looking into the protective proteins that dolphins seem to have that may contain clues to treatments for age-associated diseases in humans. When marine mammals resurface from deep dives, oxygenated blood flow is restored without the deprived organs suffering any damage. However, in humans... The same phenomenon of hypoxia, followed by reoxygenation, as experienced during a heart attack, a stroke, or acute kidney injury, causes the release of free radicals thought to damage human organs. Janish found that dolphin serum contains very high levels of an antioxidant protein called Vannin-1 that likely has a protective effect for the hypoxic organs. Janich is optimistic that their discovery could be used in future studies for the development of preventative therapies. Janich says, quote, 
We attempted to analyze all the proteins at once rather than individual proteins at one time in a cell or a tissue or an organism. It's just like genomics. When people are looking at 20,000 genes and seeing if they are turned up high or low in certain disease states. We're doing the same thing with certain dolphin proteins during hypoxic stress. There are more than 100,000 protein variants, but each protein can be modified. We have more than a million different protein variants based on modifications. Unquote. Very high Vannin-1 was a novel finding. Excessively high Vannin-1 levels were correlated with decreased liver function in the wild dolphins, which suggests they may provide a protective effect in avoiding metabolic syndrome. The function of Vannin-1 is to make vitamin B5, and in doing that, it releases an antioxidant that's been shown to protect tissues from injuries like those that occur after the hypoxia and reoxygenation of diving and resurfacing. The researchers are now looking to see if their findings have true relevance toward human disease states. Janish finishes with, quote, This is the first step. We wanted to ask what's different in an animal that can do something that would hurt a human, and they would do this every day. And can we take it back to human medicine? Unquote. Let's continue. Something new. Dinosaur brains. We finally got one. Well, sort of. Dr. David Norman of University of Cambridge reported in an online Geological Society of London special publication last month that a chunk of petrified brain tissue discovered in a tidal pool in southern England is the first reported from a dinosaur. Norman says, quote, The roughly 133-million-year-old fossil preserves the brain's wrinkled topology. There are pits and creases and folds. It's a little bit like your bed when you wake up in the morning somewhat crinkled and folded, unquote. The fossil, or roughly palm-sized rock, includes bits of bone and the tough outer layers of the brain, the dura matter. A microscopic analysis revealed the brain's plumbing, tiny branched tubing, blood vessels, crisscrossing the fossil surface and penetrating what was once the brain tissue. A beachcombing fossil collector found the specimen back in 2004, it probably belonged to a herbivorous dinosaur, like Beryllium or Hypsellospinus, at least according to Norman, with a body the length of a mini cooper, he says. Norman indicates soft tissue is unusual in the fossil record. The dinosaur probably tipped headfirst into a boggy swamp, where acidic water literally pickled its own brain. Later, minerals would have petrified the pickled tissue. Norman finishes with, quote, the resulting fossil doesn't offer insight into the mind of dinosaurs, but it does provide remarkable preservation of a piece of the brain itself, unquote. The next story of the evening is an astrophysics one, since you guys are probably sick of the biology stuff. Headline, X-rays appear to be trickling away from Pluto, even though the dwarf planet has no obvious way of making X-rays. Okay, given all the cool stuff that researchers learned about Pluto, since the New Horizons spacecraft flew by last year in 2015, this discovery about X-rays is, well, surprising to say the least. As I understand it, for many comets and planets, X-rays are generated when the solar wind, which is a stream of charged particles from the sun, runs into the neutral gas atoms or the magnetic fields from these bodies. However, 
The environment around Pluto isn't conducive to producing X-rays, they say. First, the dwarf planet has no measurable magnetic field. Second, its atmosphere is very thin. And third, it's losing that atmosphere, the, what little atmosphere it has, at rates that are, are much lower than expected. Dr. Carrie Lice from the Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland, reported the story in the online journal Archive on October 25th. Lice says, quote, We naively thought Pluto might be losing its atmosphere at the same rate as some comets. We knew comets make X-rays, so we hoped Pluto did too. We believe that interactions between the solar wind and a tenuous tail of methane gas, hundreds of times longer than Pluto's diameter, might be the culprit for these X-rays, unquote. Lice used the Chandra X-ray telescope in 2014, and then three more times in 2015 to look for Plutonian X-rays. The telescope detected just seven photons streaming from Pluto in a total of about two days' worth of observation time. Okay, frankly, I am not even sure what that means. Does that mean that Pluto produced seven separate signals, or that literally this X-ray telescope was able to detect seven individual photons? Either way, they detected something. Anyway, Lice said that even though it's a pretty weak signal, that it's still about six or seven more photons than expected based on the New Horizons probe measurements of Pluto's atmosphere and the solar wind. The paper notes that the signal appears to follow Pluto across the sky. They detected X-ray photons on four separate occasions. The energy of the photons doesn't appear to match that of the background X-ray noise that peppers the telescope, so they think that the signal appears genuine. Lice concludes with this, saying, quote, We understand that there's a bit of skepticism, so we're going to do some follow-up with a totally different X-ray instrument to verify our first findings. X-rays from Pluto aren't just a quirky detail about this specific dwarf planet. If other bodies in the Kuiper Belt ring of debris just past Neptune's orbit have atmospheres, then X-ray observations could help to detect them as well. Unquote. For the next story, let's stick with this physics theme. Super solids have been finally produced. It took me a while to understand what a supersolid might be, because it certainly isn't something that you ever come across in normal life. However, two teams of scientists have reported in the last two months the creation of this mind-boggling state of matter, which is both liquid and solid at the same time. Supersolids have a crystalline structure like a solid, but at the same time can flow like a fluid, a superfluid, which is a fluid that flows without any friction. The closest thing you'll find in the non-quantum physical world to that is glass, which is actually a liquid that flows incredibly slowly, but still flows. And at the same time, it's also a solid, as we perceive it at least. But supersolids go beyond that, way beyond that. Research teams from MIT and the University of Zurich have produced supersolids in an exotic form of matter called a Bose-Einstein condensate. The MIT group reported their work at the end of October online at archive.com and the Zurich group at the end of September at the same online publishing site. Bose-Einstein condensates 
are created when a group of atoms, chill to near absolute zero, huddle up into the same quantum state and begin behaving like a single entity. The scientist's trick for creating a supersolid was to nudge the condensate, which is already a superfluid, into simultaneously behaving like a solid. The MIT and Zurich teams both created regular density variations in the atoms, like repeating crystal structure of a more typical solid. And that density variation stays put, even though the fluid can still flow. The new results may be the first supersolid ever created. The MIT scientists originally expected supersolids to appear in helium-4, an isotope of the element helium, and the same gas that fills balloons at children's birthday parties. Helium-4 can be chilled and pressurized to produce a superfluid or a solid. Supersolid helium would have been a mixture of the two states. Now, I find this story absolutely amazing. I mean, the idea of a supersolid is so strange because superfluid and solid states compete. And in most materials, atoms are forced to choose one or the other. But in a Bose-Einstein condensate, the two states can more easily live together in harmony, I guess. But I have no idea exactly how they're able to do that because, well, I'm not a physicist. All right. Last story of the evening. From early on in human evolution, rampant sex has brought nothing but bad news to humans. And it seems that this continues. We've discussed early Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbreeding and podcasts over the last couple of years, and most of our discussions have been about the Neanderthal DNA that was left behind in our genomes even after 100,000 years. Because of these little tetetes, non-Africans still contain somewhere between 1% and 5% Neanderthal genomic material. Now scientists claim that Neanderthals gave our ancestors not just DNA, but a sexually transmitted disease as well. Well, lucky us, STDs from ancient hookups. Who knew? Dr. Ignacio Bravo reported in the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution that the human papilloma strain HPV-16, which infects about um, 4% of Americans and can lead to cervical cancer, is about 500,000 years old and likely originated in Neanderthal populations or the Denisovans, another extinct human ancestor, which we've talked about here too. Yes, boys and girls, now you can blame the hookups of some ancient ancestor of yours for your STD. Bravo of the French National Center for Scientific Research says, quote, Oncogenic viruses are very ancient. The history of humans is also the history of viruses we carry and we inherit. Our work suggests that some aggressive oncogenic viruses were transmitted by sexual contact from archaic to modern humans, unquote. Bravo and his colleagues obtained 118 full sequences of HPV-16 from five different subtypes to assemble a genetic timeline that suggested the transmission of that strain went from Neanderthals, or Denisovans, to Homo sapiens. And the current prevalence of HPV-16 corroborates that suggestion. The strain is virtually absent from populations of sub-Saharan African, meaning that Homo sapiens who migrated out of Africa more than 100,000 years ago must have picked up the strain from somewhere else. 
Yes, blame it on the Neanderthals. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Stay away from Neanderthals unless you want a social disease. Keep watching the Plutonian skies for x-rays. Happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. As always, Jim, always a pleasure, my sir, always a pleasure. I even had this show in last week. Jim said he even got it so early so I could play it last week, but we had that big announcement, as you know. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do drop us a line, get in touch, let us know your thoughts. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. If you've enjoyed this show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free. But we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as two ninety nine a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Stories This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.